Well, thank you, Pastor Chris and Radiant Bible Church. It is great to be with you. Um, man, I miss being with you. I know Karen and I miss being with you, and we trust that you are doing well in the Lord. Um, it's been an interesting season, hasn't it? It's been a heavy season in a number of ways, and yet it's the perfect kind of season for us to be in the very series that we are in right now, Radiant God Grasping His Greatness. We've been in this series, as you know, since the beginning of the year. We've been seeking to start a new decade out, if you will, to start with a 2020 vision, an increased clarity of who our God is. And in that, as we've been uh, studying these uh, various uh, elements of the nature of our God, we have come to see and, and dug into the fact that our God is triune. Our God is eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient. We've seen that our God is all-present and all-powerful and all-knowing. And along with that, we have seen that our God is all-holy. We've also delved into the fact that our God is unchanging, that our God is creator, that our God is covenant maker, and that our God is faithful. Our God is faithful to who he is. And then we went into our God is sovereign. And our God is long-suffering and just. And then last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we talked about how our God is Love. Not that our God grabs an element of love and makes that part of who he is, but our God is love. And then today, we're going to be delving into our God is mercy. And because of how it's going to fit in at the end, I actually want to make note of next Sunday. Our God is grace. I want for us, as we delve into our God is mercy, and we have all of these listed here for us to remember that our God is all of these, all the time. There has never not been a time in all of eternity past and in present in the future where our God is not all of these. And it's important for us to know that these do not conflict with each other, that they do not oppose each other, they do not compete with each other. God is not in a competition with who he is. Uh, we may not be able to put them all together, but our God is all of these all the time. And we hold on to those. One of the challenges in this, though, is that uh, we have a tendency to kind of play God like a, uh, a deck of cards. We think of cards, we hold cards, we discard cards. And, and let's just kind of like grab a card of who God is, like uh, God is love. Now, there's like the ace of spades, right? Well, I mean, we want to hold on to that. And then we, we go and we grab, well, our God is creator, maybe the king of spades. And, and then our God is covenant maker, the queen of spades. And then our God is all powerful, the jack of spades. And then we get, our God is all faithful. It's kind of like someone stacked the deck here, isn't it? I did. And we look at these and we go, whoa, I love this. This is a royal flush of who God is. And then we take those and we hold on to those in our hand. But, but then when we kind of come upon these 
uh, intrinsic, uh, absolute elements of who our God is, like, for instance, sovereign. Our God is sovereign. You know, sometimes we're kind of be like, you know what, I'm going to discard that. I'll let someone else take care of that. Or, or maybe we go, oh, God is holy, absolutely holy. And it's like, that's too far for me, too big for me to grab a hold. I'm going to kind of discard that and let someone else deal with that. Or here's one, our God is just. I mean, how does the fact that our God is just and our God is love and our God is mercy and our God is grace, how does that fit together? I'll just kind of discard that one out. And what we do is we end up kind of making the God that we want in our own hand and then we kind of pack that away and we hold on to who God is in that manner. But that's not how we're to do it. God is all of these. And we cherish all of who God is. And we don't play the cards that we like of who God is because know this, God does not play himself like he's a deck of cards and neither are we. Instead, we take all of who God is and we take it and we put it and we hang on to it and we bring it out and we remind ourselves all of who God is. That's a series we're in right now. Our God is. And right now, it's important when we have an economy that's not doing well, know this. This is who our God is. When, when things are going wonderful, this is who our God is. When a, a pandemic hits, this is still who our God is. When a Republican is president, when a Democrat is president, this is still who our God is. When our bank account is full, this is who our God is. When our bank account is empty, this is who our God is. You, you get the idea. This is who our radiant God is all the time, all the time, all the time, and we're grasping a hold of it, and we're holding on to all of who our God is. And so, Lord, I just want to take that and I want to ask for your help as we dive in today and add this amazing reality of you are mercy. Would you help us to grasp a hold of this, to pull this in, to, to know you closer? And God, we are reminded that what comes into our minds when we think about you is the most important thing about us, and I pray that we would think rightly of you, and today we get to key in on this one element of you, that you are mercy, and it is beautiful and delightful. So show us more of you, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. Radiant God grasping his greatness, today our God is mercy. If you would please open your copy of God's word to Luke, I'm sorry, to Exodus, uh, 33. Uh, please open your copy of God's Word to Exodus uh, 33. Uh, note that in Exodus 33 here, it's post the Exodus. It is post the initial meetings at Mount Sinai with God. It is post the Ten Commandments. It is post or it is after uh, the golden calf incident. 
And Moses here in Exodus 33, in the beginning of it, he says, uh, God, I know you by name. Please show me your ways. And so God says to Moses that he will allow his presence How cool is that to pass before Moses? Let's pick up here in Exodus 33 where we're digging into who our God is as to his mercy. Exodus 33, verse 17, it says this, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. By the way, a a, a right translation of that could be this way as well. Please show me your radiance. Verse 19, and he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. These verses, particularly verse 19, is just packed with the Lord speaking of who he is. He declares who he is. And in this, he tells us that part of who he is is his, his in the Hebrew, his tuv. Uh, I'm kind of uh, killing Hebrew here, but uh, I'm going there. His tuv, his, his goodness, his, his beauty will pass before him. God then declares that his hanan, his graciousness, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy is going to be there. God declares that his raham, his love, his strong affection toward. Another word that's used in times in scripture to be translated as mercy here. Well, what am I pointing us to? Listen, God attaches mercy to himself. God is mercy. Mercy is not something else that God says, hey, that's a good idea. It's like we talked about last Sunday with love. It's not outside of God. No, no, no. God is love and God is mercy. Not only is God mercy, but God also shows mercy. Look down in chapter 34, verses 6 in the beginning of verse 7. And so the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, by the way, long-suffering, we've talked about that, and abounding in steadfast love, that was last Sunday, and faithfulness, we've talked about that, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by who, uh, but who will by no means clear the guilty, might I say just? I mean, uh, think about this here. God is describing himself. God is telling us who he is. He is revealing his very nature and what he is about here. And in this, as we take a look at it, we see that God clearly uh, assigns, tells us that mercy is part of who our God is. 
Mercy. Now, mercy has been defined various ways. A couple common ways that are true, but I'm going to press into them a little bit. A couple ways that are, it's defined as is not getting what is deserved. Mercy is, 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 is holding back from what is actually deserved. Another definition is God's restrained punishment. That's mercy. And both of those are true, but I just want to note this. Both of those highlight the transaction. Both of those highlight the outcome of God's mercy. And might I say, it highlights the transaction which we Americans love. We love transactional kind of things. But in it, it, it loses the reality of, might I say, the heart of mercy of God. And I want to take us there. And I want for us to behold the very core of mercy. Because mercy is not just a transaction item. Mercy comes from God. Let's go there, and let me give maybe a more full definition then of mercy. Mercy. An affection, not infection, an affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion. By the way, those are three mini-statements all uh, adding to the same idea. Mercy is an affection. It is an inexhaustible inclination. It is a love-driven compassion. That's at the core of what's going on. And that affection, that inexhaustible inclination, that love-driven compassion, uh, mercy doesn't stop there. It then acts towards. It acts towards relieving. It acts towards relieving the misery the affliction, the suffering of another or others. Mercy is an affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion, compassion that acts toward relieving the misery or the affliction, the suffering of another or others. God's mercy is not simply transactional. It is not simply outcome-based. But it is also not simply a feeling. It is not just, I feel compassion. I feel pity. It doesn't stop there, but it does start there. An affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion that shows and that's where God is beginning to lay a foundation here in Exodus 33 and 34. By the way, let me note last week, this week, and next week. Uh, love last week, mercy this week, grace next week. Might I say it this way? Love drives mercy. Mercy drives grace. And I think we see that here, and we're going to see that here in this text, that a God that is love is a God that takes that love in seeing our situation and has an affection for, an inexhaustible inclination to relieve the misery, to relieve the suffering that we know, even if you will in Exodus, that God's people were experiencing in slavery in Egypt. And out of that, out of God's grace, that's next week. Do you see the movement? God's love, mercy, grace. 
Let's fill a little bit more in on mercy because scripture talks about it. You don't have to turn to these passages. I'm just going to name them for you. You can write them down and dig into them a little bit later. Uh, one to note, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. By the way, you see it starts with love. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Think about that. Uh, God's mercy his affection, his inexhaustible uh, inclination, his love-driven compassion, it's never-ending. Never-ending. And it's new every morning. Do you ever just come to the point where you just go, God, when are you going to be done with me? When are you going to give up on me? And here, Lamentations 3, we are assured, know this, friend, God's mercies, his affection, his inclination, his compassion for suffering people never ends. And it doesn't never end in the kind of way where it keeps going, but it deletes over time. Know this, this morning, when you woke up, his mercies are new today. They are fresh today like they were back at the time when you came to know Christ as your Savior, if you know Christ as your Savior. They are new every morning. Man, thank God, right? Thank God for that. Another one, Psalm 145.9. God's mercy extends over all. It says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he made. By the way, this is referencing theologically what we, we would call God's general mercy. The fact is, is God's affection for, his inclination to, his love-driven compassion for suffering people. The, the truth of the matter is, is, God could have just wiped us out in his utter holiness and his justness, but his mercy comes alongside that and, and partners in that, if you will, and extends over all. And sometimes we go, why does God allow this just to continue? Answer, because of his mercy because of his affection for, his love-driven compassion for even suffering people. It's never-ending, it's new every morning, it extends over all. Romans 9, verses 15 through 18, uh, that's the New Testament kind of statement for Exodus 33, 19, our God sovereignly gives mercy. Uh, Romans 9, uh, uh, Paul is discussing God's sovereignty, and that leads him to talking about Pharaoh's actions in the whole leading up to the Exodus. And in Romans 9, it says this, for God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it goes on. So then it depends not on a human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's even this special sovereign giving of God's mercy. I can't explain it all. I can't lay it out all in a nice, neat package. But I do know this. That's what the scriptures say. And God in his mercy 
gives his mercy out. By the way, his mercy is not earned in the text, not by human will or exertion. You can't earn God's mercy. We fall before and we cry for God's mercy, and God sovereignly gives it. God sovereignly gives his mercy. Another verse, Luke 1, 78, Jesus is quoting a prophecy from Zechariah that says this, because of the tender mercy of our God. I love that. Our God's mercy is tender. It's never-ending. It's new every morning. It extends over all. It's sovereignly given And he's tender in it. His affection, his inexhaustible inclination, his love-driven compassion to act to relieve suffering for those that are suffering. Oh, and a couple more. Ephesians 2, 4. We're actually going to finish there today. But God is rich in mercy. In 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He is rich in mercy. In 1 Peter 1, 3, he is great in mercy. Last one I'll put out. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. It says, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Boy, that's a great one for right now. He is the father of, we could say, he is the founder of, the originator of, the original source of mercy God is. And so as we sit back and we think about our God and his mercy, know this, at the very DNA core, at the very intrinsic divine nature of our God, it is an affection an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion that is never-ending, that is new every morning, that extends over all as well as sovereignly given. It is tender, it is rich, it is great, and it all comes from the Father, the founder of all mercy and comfort. Friend, that is our God. And God's mercy is absolutely intrinsically, consistently, eternally poured out to us, as Arthur Pink says, to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Just need for us to be reminded, that is our God. And we are the broken ones. We are the ones that are in need of relief. And not so much If I can say, relief from our surrounding circumstances, that oftentimes is what consumes our minds, and understandably so. But God knows that the the thing that we don't need the most is to have our surrounding circumstances all resolved. He knows there's a bigger problem. There's a deeper suffering, a bigger affliction that is going on in you and me and us and mankind, and that is that we are cursed in the affliction of sin, and God knows that, and our triune, eternal, self-sufficient, self-existent God has an affection for you and for me, has an inclination for you and me. 
has a love-driven compassion for you and me, and he doesn't just go, you annoy me. Instead, what does our God do? Our triune God steps into our world to provide relief from the affliction that is in our soul. That is our God. And we rejoice over that. We are sinners in need of relief of, through divine mercy. Our God is mercy. A divine affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion that acts towards relief for our sin misery, our affliction, our suffering because of our depraved condition as a result of sin. Our God loves us. Doug, I can see all this, and, but could you show us this happening in Scripture? I would love to. So if you would, would you turn to Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13. By the way, as you're turning there, I'll just note this you can do some more study in it. In the Old Testament, when God is building the tabernacle and God is having the ark built, the lid on the ark where the cherubim and their wings come in, that is actually kind of the picture of where God deals judgment. And yet, how interesting in it, God doesn't call it the judgment seat. God calls it the mercy seat. How interesting that union of judgment, that union of justness with mercy is actually represented in the ark itself. And can I say, God doesn't want to call it the judgment seat there. God actually, his intrinsic nature is to call it the mercy seat. And now we're going to come into the New Testament and we're going to see the second person of the Trinity show his affection, his inclination, everything that we've been talking about. We're going to see God in the flesh showing who he is. Luke chapter 13, Jesus is in the midst of ministry in Jerusalem. The religious leaders are incessantly after him. We find him here lamenting over Jerusalem. Just listen, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? Look at this. Listen to this image. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Picture it. And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I bring this text because you can see this affection for. Even when the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about Jerusalem, he sees what is taking place and, and he's broken in this mercy, this affection, this inclination, this love-driven compassion. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem! It's such a lost opportunity. Let's build on that. Go to chapter 19 in Luke. Chapter 19, very familiar passage. Uh, the triumphal entry is in chapter 19. But note in it, 
Verse 41, when he drew near, this is coming near for the triumphal entry, and he saw the city, that's so similar to kind of what he's doing in Luke 13, and when he saw the city, it's Passover time, he sees Jerusalem, what did he do? The text says he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are all hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Listen, it's Passover. He's coming in for the triumphal entry. And what does he do as he looks and he sees uh, very possibly the million, very possibly the two million people that are gathered together, I think likely a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand, lining the way for him coming in in the triumphal entry. And part of what's going on in the very heart of our Lord is the fact that he weeps. And he doesn't weep in the kind of a way like, you are annoying. He weeps for them. He weeps over them. Why? Because they're not getting it. Because they are stuck in their affliction. They're stuck in their suffering. And yet in it, our God has an affection for He doesn't laugh at them. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't curse them. He weeps over them. And that might uh, bring up in your mind uh, John 11. Turn there. John 11. It's the account of Lazarus. Lazarus and his family were friends of Jesus's. Lazarus is told by his family that he's about to die. He's asked if he would come and heal Lazarus and so that he would not die. And Jesus waits and he waits. He waits for a few days and then he finds out Lazarus is dead. And so he goes back to the scene. Take a listen. Verse 32, John chapter 11. Now when Mary, who was Lazarus' sister, came to where Jesus was as he was coming in and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. By the way, can you sense the, the hurt, the frustration, maybe even might I say the anger? Lord, I I told you, and you didn't come, and now my brother has died. Verse 33, and when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews, who had come with her weeping, look at the text. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Here we go. Here's the verse. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the, uh, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, 
deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. We'll stop there in the movement of the text. Listen. This is more than Jesus doing a miracle. This is an opportunity to be able to understand the, the if I can say, the heart, the nature of the second person of the Trinity incarnate in flesh. And he comes into this scene, and as he's walking in, kind of like he's coming into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, he comes in here in Lazarus' death, and he sees what's going on all around him. Lazarus, he knows Lazarus has died, and he sees the scene of his family, he sees the scene of uh, all of those who are mourning his death. And we don't see Jesus like, come on, you guys, don't you understand theological truth? And what? He doesn't do that. He doesn't get irritated with them to the point. Well, what do we see here? I would say this. We see mercy. A sense of affection. An inexhaustible. An inexhaustible. Inclination. A love-driven compassion. And he doesn't just feel the feeling. What does he do? He goes. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Friends, this is just a snippet of who our God is. I'll note in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is on the cross. And he said, Father, fry them. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. He gets it. He understands our condition. He knows our brokenness. He understands our inability. He understands our suffering at the core. And there is this divine affection, this inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven passion that acts towards relief for our suffering, for our affliction. That's what the gospel is all about. And excuse me, for my emotion in this, Thank God 
Thank God for his mercy. One final passage to finish. If you would turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. If you've been around here for a while, you know that this is a favorite passage of mine. And I want to finish here because I want for us to see the movement. So let's finish here. Ephesians chapter 2. And by the way, as we're here, I want to kind of off the page of these uh, attributes. I'd like to pull up, kind of pull to the front four of them. Let's go ahead and do that here. Justness, love, grace, mercy. Let's see it in the text. And you, verse 1 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Man, that's heavy terminology. By the way, I literally have in my Bible written next to all those verses, just. That is a God who is holy and all of the other attributes that are brought into this, but that is his justness showing. That is his fairness showing. God is telling us exactly the situation at hand for us. He's writing to believers, but he's referencing them that you were spiritually dead at one time in Christ. But now after coming to Christ, as we'll see in the text, after that, but you have to understand what you were and God's justness tells us that we have an affliction that we have a situation that needs to be resolved. And so God doesn't look at that and go, ha, 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 or tough for you, or deal with it, you fools. God doesn't do that. Look at verse 4. But God, but God being what? Rich in mercy. God is a tycoon in mercy. Oh, and look at the text. Because of the great love with which he loved us. We can go back to last week, John 3, 16. And by the way, note in this, because of God's love, God has mercy. Why is mercy important? Because in God's justness, God's justness understands that we are sin afflicted, and yet he loves us, and he has out of that a mercy and affection for you and me in this world. And so what then then happens? Because of his great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace next week. You have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a what? A gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's my point. 
the very nature of who our God is tells the story of the gospel. All have sinned and fallen short. But for God so loved the world that he stepped into our world as out of his affection, out of his love-driven compassion to bring relief to our sin affliction and that happens by grace. Listen, the gospel is not something tagged on to who God is. God is the gospel. And all that has taken place highlights exclamation points, the greatness of our God. And we need to hang on to that. Mercy. A divine affection. An inexhaustible inclination. A love-driven compassion in the very nature of who our God is. Not just sitting there, not just feeling a feeling, but to act. To bring relief to those who are suffering and afflicted and stuck in sin. And we behold that. And we look at that and as we understand that, need to know this. If there has never been a time in your life where you've driven the stake in the ground and received the mercy gift, the love-driven mercy gift of grace, I want to call you to do that now. And you just tell God, God, I am a sinner, but thank you for your love. And out of your love, you and your mercy through grace have made the provision through the work of Christ to redeem my broken soul. And friend, if you know Christ as your Savior, this is not just something we hang on to when we come to Christ. No, no, no. You see, his mercies are new every morning, every day, every moment. We need to grasp on to the amazing, amazing grace of our God. And lastly, not only do we grasp a hold of it, but we live it. Let me just finish with this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, I made mention of it earlier. It says, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. It's not a period. The sentence continues on. Paul says, So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This comfort that God has poured out on us, we don't hold it in our deck. No, no, no. We behold it. We cherish it. New every morning. Oh, and by the way, we pour it out. And what a time at home to be doing that right now. If you are living with others in your home as a family, together, maybe over the recent days or weeks, there have just been times where your affection, your inclination <laughs> has gotten harder and harder to try and bring them relief in their suffering. What an opportunity we have in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own homes, to pour out mercy 
because of his poured out mercy on us. Lord, I ask that you would take all of that and the Spirit of God would do a work in our lives, in our thinking, in our understanding, also in our doing. Lord, again, I do. I pray if there's someone who is like, I, I, I don't know a relationship like that with the Lord. Father, I pray that they would ask, they would call us. We'd love to talk with them what it looks like to know that they know that they know that they have a living, breathing, real, abiding in love relationship with the Savior of the universe. Father, I pray for the person who right now, maybe they're just discouraged to a point where it's like, how can God continue with me? May they be reminded that your affection, your inexhaustible inclination, your love-driven compassion for them never ceases. New every day. Not built upon what we do or who we are. This is just all about who you are. May we live it among us. Oh God, you are amazing. In Christ's name we pray.